Internet Brand Strategist, Sandra Beck, interviews top business coaches, speakers, authors, and thought leaders to bring you the best business tips, tricks, and techniques to give your idea the best possible chance for success. From writing your first novel, to telecommuting from home, to taking your small business to infinity and beyond. Now here's your host, Sandra Beck. Um, yep, and I'll start it and cool. Okay, go ahead. Okay. Hey everyone, it's Erin Carey and I'm sitting here with the one, the only Sandra Beck. And I am so excited because I really wanted to talk to somebody about the topic of narcissism. And Sandra is a good friend of mine and I was discussing this with her. Who should I talk to? Well, turns out Sandra knows quite a bit about narcissism and narcissists and she has done trainings on this topic. And so I can't wait to dive right in and discuss and discuss this. I think it's really timely because I keep hearing this phrase pop up again and again, don't you? Absolutely. Because as we get into this digital age and really it's, it's permeated every aspect of our life, it causes narcissists to be easily recognized. You know, there's lots of different kinds of narcissists. There's covert and they're overt. And the overt ones are the ones that we we think of immediately. We think of some, you know, policeman out of control. We think of some military commander going bananas or, you know, some serial killer, you know, kind of things. Those are really obvious ones. But the ones that are more covert or the ones that are more damaging that show up in our families, show up in our schools, show up in our communities, do a lot of damage to people if you don't know to recognize them and put your boundaries up. Because quite frankly, really nice people get sucked into narcissists all the time. And I work in Los Angeles. And at one point, Erin, I had to look and go, I married one. I work for one. Majority of my clients are one. No wonder I feel road hard, put away wet, run over and exhausted at the end of the day, because these people kind of bleed you dry. Hmm. Yeah. And it's funny because like you said, I think we hear the phrase thrown out a lot and we say, well, I know he's a narcissist or I'm married to a narcissist, but what, what is the definition of a narcissist? What does it really mean to be a narcissist? Well, when you have a clinical, you know, diagnosis kind of thing, and I'm not, I'm not a clinical, you know, um, I'm not anything other than somebody who's had a lot of experience with it and done a ton of radio shows on it. But the, the difference, the really the big thing is when somebody runs over someone, when they hurt someone, when they do something particularly awful, they're not sorry, they don't feel anything for the other person and they might be incredibly cruel or incredibly insulting, or you'll, you'll look to your friend and go, who does that? Like the, you know, my ex-husband one time was making fun of kids at an elementary talent show and the other parents could hear it. And I remember sitting back there, we were well divorced by this time, but I remember sitting like three rows back and the people in front of us are like, listen to that guy in front of me, what a jerk. Like who does that? Who 
puts down, you know, makes fun of children to make themselves look like the funny guy, to make themselves, to put the entertainment and the, you know, the attention on them. And these are the people that you start recognizing within your family, within your community. They can always drive the conversation back to them. It's always about their hurt feelings. They're the ones that were victimized in whatever. And this person's always a jerk, but yet you watch their behavior and you go, okay, you're the jerk. Like, you know, a lot of people we call that's just a jerk or, you know, like this person is, is ridiculous. They're so selfish. They're so this, but the big hallmark of going, you know, from selfishness to narcissism is lack of empathy. And, you know, when you see that person, if somebody has a, you know, never says they're sorry, you know, I can say with my boss that I worked with for 15 years, no matter what she did, she was never sorry. She was never responsible. It was always somebody else's fault. And in fact, it was not only their fault, but look at how victimized they were. And you start recognizing these patterns in people. That's interesting because even as you're saying that, I'm thinking about certain situations, certain people I'm like, oh, oh yeah, I know somebody like that. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, we like, all do. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's a lack of empathy, but is there like, is there a lack of self awareness or is it a lack of awareness of others? So I know empathy is that awareness of others sure. and others feelings, but are they self-aware or well, they're only self-aware insofar as how things relate to them. Like the pandemic for someone who's a narcissist would be like, they are so annoyed that they can't go to the restaurant. They're so annoyed. Like they're so angry and upset. Like it's somehow COVID's big, you know, conspiracy against you, you know, not like, you know, and everybody gets irritated. Everybody has some narcissism. We all have narcissism and there's healthy narcissism. Healthy narcissism helps us form boundaries. But when it gets to the point where you, if you find yourself looking at this person and going, you're ridiculous, or, you know, this isn't all about you. The whole world isn't conspiring to keep you from going to Olive Garden on Friday night. Like, <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's degrees of things. And so when they don't have empathy or they, they don't have self-awareness, it's, we're not sure whether it's a genetic component, or it's a genetic component that is fueled by, you know, society or, you know, was somebody neglected? I mean, there's about three or four different theories about how do you build a narcissist? Generally, it's patterns in childhood that are broken. The child has maybe problems to begin with where they don't feel any empathy and there wasn't any empathy or social training in the household. So they, or the parents raised them. Everything is about you, my wonderful child, you know, the sun rises and sets on you, but the real like dividing line is that empathy. We all know spoiled people, right? I mean, that's just the, it's the, you know, we live in the United States. Of course we know spoiled people. So when you look at these spoiled people and you go, but there can be spoiled people who have remarkably generous hearts, you know, and they can be a little spoiled. I think of one of my friends in Malibu, he is so spoiled, but he would be the first one that would like, when I got sick, he's the first one to send flowers. He's the first one, you know, he has some, some feelings for other people, but then there's those members of our society that really don't. They don't care if you're sad or upset. They want to get what they want. Yeah. It reminds me of like a little, a little kid, you know, it's like almost like they got stuck in childhood somehow. 
and never made it out into the world with the rest of us. And they're just in that egocentric way of thinking, just like yep. a little, I don't remember what the, I the took their years. I mean, they yeah, do that's what it is. <laughs> yeah. Emotionally, these people have never passed beyond the toddler years. And, you know, you see these adults doing toddler like behavior. They, they flip out at, you know, magic mountain because they can't get their ticket, whatever, you know what I mean? Or they have to wait in line and there's always, and the thing is you'll see trends within your sphere of influence going, Who's the one that's always upset about something at Thanksgiving dinner? There's something's not going to be right. And then you watch everybody like satellites kind of navigate around that planet person to make sure that they don't get upset. You know, everybody's worried about them being upset, their feelings being hurt. You know, they're going to be mad and ruin it for everyone those type of people usually, not always, but are usually, you know, kind of fall into that narcissistic bag. Right. Erin, you know, now is a good time to thank our sponsor. Our sponsor today is Best Fiends, and they've been great for Coach Talk Radio, and they've been with us for over a year now, and I've been playing this game for almost two years, and I would love for you guys to download the five-star rated puzzle game Best Fiends free today on the Apple App Store and Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. And you know, I've had some childhood friends that are still my friends today. You know, Robbie, I'm just putting a shout out to you. You've stood by me no matter what. And your closest friends are always there when you need them most in good times, bad times, and between times they've got your back. And that's how I feel about Best Fiends. Because if you like solving fun puzzles, Best Fiends is for you. And it's always in my pocket. It's always in my purse because I have it on my phone and there's thousands of levels to solve. I'm already over 300 levels solved and there's plenty more where that came from. And what I like about the game is it's fun to play. It's challenging, but it's not so challenging that it gets, that I get frustrated. And when there's an event or a challenge, it helps me kind of, you know, celebrate the holidays and, when I'm frustrated, when I'm bored, when I'm having to wait for something, I can just take my phone out and play a couple rounds. And it reminds me of when I was a kid, that kind of joyful, uplifting, the colors are pretty, the characters are cute, the game is fun, the music is nice. It just takes me away for a couple minutes. And then I can get back to work or get back on the freeway, all the things that I need to do as a full-time working mom. And so I really like the brain break aspect aspect of it. And it feels like I just, you know, had a, had a good dance session or a good, you know, kind of dodgeball. Remember how much fun that was when we used to play dodgeball. So go ahead and download the five-star rated puzzle game, Best Fiends, free today on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. And Erin, you know, we were talking about how to spot a narcissist. A lot of them end up in like leadership roles, sure. right? So sure. how, how is that? <laughs> well, and you know, here's the thing, you know, narcissism plus certain careers do really well. Like I think of a couple scientists that I know over at JPL who are huge raging narcissists. They're very good at what they do, Aaron, and they work with machines, which is a good thing because they're not good at working with people. And they're single-minded focused on one thing. So like if we had a cancer researcher that wasn't married, didn't have kids, and didn't really interact with other people, that narcissistic trait, that narcissistic side of them can, can really come up with really great results. It's when you take a full narcissist 
and put them in a family, put them with children, put them with lots of people. You know, those people are not going to, you know, they're not going to care for people the way we would hope they will. But I'm going to give you a flip side here. There are certain jobs in our society that require you to disconnect from humanity, that you have to, in order to get a job done, you know, if you're, you know, a bodyguard or something, I'm not saying all bodyguards are narcissists, but when you look at people who, who have to kill as part of their career, they may or may not have more of these traits than somebody who doesn't, you know, cause that's the thing. It's a wide spectrum. It's like everything, you know, just because you think somebody's a narcissist on one day and not another day, they're probably not. But if they're consistent patterns of behavior of, of dehumanizing, of shaming, of everything's all about me. And the biggest thing, the biggest takeaway that I learned is I always walk away from these people exhausted. Like mm-hmm. I am drained. Like I don't want to be around you. And I'm just so tired of you, you, your feelings, your, you know, it all being about you. That's interesting. And so it's because it's a head game, right? Like sure. they're, they're expert manipulators from my, my understanding, yes. right? because I do, I have a friend who um, close, you know, has had a struggle in her marriage in the past being yes. married to a narcissist. And it seems like there are a lot of manipulative tools that were used when they were married. And so what, what are some of those, I guess, like red flags? Okay. In red flags are, are the, um, the biggest red flag is, is watching yourself, especially in a relationship disappear. You know, mm-hmm. you're, they're right. You're wrong. You know, you have to say you're sorry. They don't say they're sorry. Um, like upping the ante all the time, you know, like I could clean my house top to bottom. I mean, seriously, Aaron, and have a housekeeper in and we could clear the whole thing. And a narcissistic husband would walk in and pick up the mail on the counter and go, what is this doing here? Where, where can we put this? And it's like, Hey, this whole house was just cleaned. Your kids are well-fed, whatever. And they'll, they'll pick on little things and they'll be very good at getting out of, under your skin. So you start to disappear. You start to women who are married with narcissists. And I don't know about men, so they have to have their own talk show and everything and figure it out. Cause <laughs> I'm not a man. I haven't really talked to a lot of men. I've really only talked to one man who uh, was married to a narcissist. And when I wrote all those articles and did a lot of speaking on it, he's like, I get it now. I have a label for my marriage and they report. And I report feeling like you're drowning in the relationship. Like you're never good enough. You're never on time. And they, they do a thing called gaslighting, which, you know, it's named after a movie and people have a hard time figuring out what it is. And for me, I had a hard time figuring out what it is, but what it looked like for me, Aaron, is I could go and pick up my ex-husband from the airport and I would be on time. I would be late sometimes. I mean, it's LA, you have these things. So he would get mad at me at some point because I was late. 
And he would go back and rewrite history and say things like, well, every time you pick me up, you're late. I always have to wait. I'll always, you know, and, and when you hear the words like always, you never, you know, those big, you know, those words, there's lots of words that narcissists use. You can Google them, you know, and you'll start to hear them and you'll see a pattern. The pattern basically is you messed up. I'm angry. I deserve better. And you're nothing. So I started to take post-its and write the time the flight landed, the time I got to the airport, the time we got home. I made notes of when, you know, the luggage was delayed because what happens is they're so adamant, they start rewriting your memory. And they say, well, you're late all the time. And, you know, the last time you picked me up, you were late. And, and I, I would say like, well, I remember the, the plane getting in on time. And I remember it was the luggage that was like, no, you were late. I remember this and I was right. And I, I have this opinion and blah, blah, blah. And then I would go back into my office, Aaron, and I would look at my post-it because my post-it became the reality because a really good narcissist has their own world, their own mm. reality, their own set of rules. The rules that apply to you don't apply to them. They could be late to pick me up, but I don't have the right to complain. I don't have the right to say anything. But if I'm late to pick up them, there's hell to pay. And then there's rewriting of stories. And that's one of the things that affected me for a long time was this kind of cognitive confusion mm-hmm. that you have. And you're like, I remember it so differently. And then there's the, well, that's because you're crazy or you're not getting enough sleep. There's something wrong with you, which is why you remember it differently. And at the end of the day, there's only one truth. And that truth belongs to the narcissist. He's or she, they're right. You're wrong. No matter what it is. Yeah. It does sound like it, it can make you feel crazy. Sure. Like it makes you feel like you are the crazy one. Right. It does. It makes you feel, cause then you're like, do I, do I not remember this? Right. And that's why if you're in a relationship with someone who's a crazy maker, you know, that was like the term before, <laughs> you know, narcissist, like this person drives me crazy, you know, and you look at this and go, okay, write down your truth, whatever your truth looks like. And I'm not saying your truth is right. And I'm not saying you're not crazy. Maybe you are like, who knows, but, but write down your truth somewhere and then hide it. Remember where you hit it. And then when that argument with your partner, spouse, friend comes up again, check the truth. Because I wrote down those times, Aaron, at the airport, in my car, those were irrefutable truths to me. So when I came home and stuck it on the inside of my cabinet in my office where nobody would look at it, you know, there with my computer codes, like it just looked like something else. I could go back to my office and go my home office and open the door and go, okay, I'm not crazy. They're rewriting history. They're, they're piling all these failings on me that aren't there. Hmm. Yeah. Well, and it sounds like they, like you said, they're rewriting And they're basically lying, but they seem to believe. Oh, they believe it. So they've created this world where they're like rewriting and retelling whatever it is. And, but they believe it and they're insistent about it. Right. Oh, absolutely. They believe it. It's their reality. And they can sit in a court and completely lie and have no remorse, no anything, because they're not lying at that point, Aaron, they believe it. They write a story in their head that paints them usually as the, the hero 
or the victim. And there's a triangle that I teach. It's called villain, victim, hero. And when you listen to people's stories, look for the triangle. Are they the victim? Are they the villain? Or are they the hero? And almost no one will tell a story when they're the villain. And so they're either the victim or the hero. And when you start listening to these people over and over, they're always the victim or they're always the hero of the story. It's not just, hey, Aaron, I went to the pick up the food today and this happened and whatever. Like, you know, like, like the stuff we tell. Mm-hmm. It's like, I, I fixed this. I solved this problem. And this person was stupid. And this person was bad. And I'm the only one who, that's where we get into those qualifiers of always, never, only. And then you hear the story of, these people never liked me. They never appreciated me. And you realize, okay, this is a victim type narcissist. This is the hero narcissist. Because if you watch the stories they tell, you know, people will tell you who you, who they are, if you just listen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is very true. But you guys, that's, yeah, yeah. So what are some just if somebody feels like they're working for a narcissist, how is that different from being married to a narcissist or being in a relationship or having a friendship with a narcissist? You know, it's very similar because you spend a lot of time with these people. You know, if you, if you have a narcissistic boss and you guys work one-on-one every day for eight, nine hours, that's very similar to a relationship. I mean, it is a relationship. Maybe you're not married to your boss and, you know, but the same systematic devaluation of you where you're just kind of fighting to keep up your, you're trying to keep your spirits up. You're trying to keep your energy up and you find like, you know, yourself feeling worse and worse. And one of the hallmarks of a narcissistic boss is don't do what I do, do what I tell you to do. And then if you don't get it done, you exist to make me look good, Aaron. So you have to make me look good. And when something bad happens, it's going to be your fault. Never mind. You're going to take the blame. You're going to take the fall. I'm going to be the good guy. And whenever you have any sort of praise or um, accolades given to you, all of a sudden you're the enemy. And it's like, you wouldn't be there without me. And I'm really the reason that you're successful. And if you should ever complain about working too many hours, they're going to turn around and tell you they work twice the hours and they haven't taken a vacation in 10 years. And who cares about your vacation? Because there's always that one-upmanship, that betterment of themselves. And then they push it on you. It's like the horse with the carrot. But the carrot keeps getting higher and higher and further ahead. And people who don't have good boundaries, people who are people pleasers, people who are, you know, wanting attention and approval, they will chase that carrot down until the cows come home. And that narcissist will lead that person and will literally almost take over their life. Wow. You just described some people I know, and I'm sure somebody is listening to this and going, Oh, that's my boss. (laughs) So that's crazy. So how how do you, you know, I know in a relationship, okay, so you can start keeping track of things and maybe writing it down. But if you're working for somebody like this and and you can't get out, like this is your job, right? And you can't quit. 
how in the world do you handle working with them and not feel like you're crazy all the time? Well, I think step one is recognizing who and what you're working for or married to or raising or were raised by. Like identifying it, number one, is gives you a lot of peace of mind. Then do your research, you know, really start looking at articles on narcissism, look at these checkpoints, you know, listen to, to podcasts like this um, and, and really educate yourself on what, what that personality is doing, what that, that whatever it is that's going on, the more you know, the more you can recognize it. And you probably aren't going to be able to stop it in your tracks. Like you can't stop a narcissist from yelling at you unless you walk away, you know, or remove yourself from the situation. But if you can't, you don't have to sit there and be a punching bag. You can say things in your head and go, this is their typical narcissistic villain, victim, you know, hero thing where I'm the villain, they're the victim, I'm the villain, they're the hero. You know, when you recognize these things, like once I recognized it in my marriage, and this didn't happen until after I was divorced, but I was co-parenting, I'm like, oh, here we go. Okay. He's going to be the, the, the victim. I'm the villain and his new wife's going to be the hero. That's the game we're going to play. And once you recognize it, it takes the sting out of it because you realize this isn't mm. about me. This is their shtick. This is the thing they do. And if they're the, the victim player, you can look at the boss or the person, your coworker or, you know, person in your family, when they go into victim mode, you can give them the one or two victim lines that you always tell them and just let it go and move on. Cause you, at that point, you've, you've disengaged, you've separated yourself from going, there's something wrong with me. And I have to do something to make this narcissist feel better, feel more important, feel powerful, whatever it is. You can throw away those lines all you want. They're meaningless. They pacify the narcissist so that they go away and you live your life. Yeah, that is so good because I do know just knowing people who have narcissists in their lives, whether it's relationships or at the workplace and it's exhausting and you can spend hours figuring out what is wrong with them. Are they just like, do they just need to go to counseling? Do they just like, do they have this going on? Like what? Like, it's so hard, but really it's okay. They see things, they see the world through only their lens and they're only capable of seeing the world through their lens. And it really is about them. They don't have it in for me. It's really just, they want to make themselves look better. I think that's helpful. It is. And that, that everyone around them is a tool to be used, you know, Mm -hmm. like in divorce with narcissistic, with a narcissistic parent, the thing that that everybody can recognize listening to this is the narcissistic parent will use their kids, even if there's little kids mercilessly to get what they want. They'll use them to hurt the other parent. They'll use them to do whatever in court. They'll, they'll just use them, manipulate them, and they won't even feel bad about it. They're justified because they've been victimized and they need to do these things. There's always a justification with a narcissist. There's always a big laundry list of reasons of why they did some egregious, awful, mm. obnoxious thing and why somebody else had it coming. They deserve it. You know, these type of things, you start to hear people's 
stories. You know, when I say they tell people tell you who they are, listen for these things. When you hear somebody saying, you know, they deserved it. So I gave it to them and, you know, or, oh, poor me. And you need to do these things because, you know, I'm so victimized. I'm so this, I mean, you are an adult and you are in a relationship with this spouse, parent, child, coworker, boss, any one of those in your circle or family member. So you have to make a decision going, am I going to willing to dance? Am I willing to play the game? Because when you engage with a narcissist, you're playing a game, you're playing their game <laughs> and you exist only for their entertainment, for their their use to get you to like gang up on other people. That's the other thing that narcissists do. They get mm. their whole team together to not like you, to ignore you. And it's like, okay, we're 40. We're not in fourth grade anymore, but mm. that's the difference. These behaviors that we didn't like in elementary and middle school, they're still doing these same things at 40, 50, 60, 70 years old. They're manipulative. They're, they'll tell stories. They'll, they'll totally sandbag somebody. That person will be their friend at one point. Then they become their enemy and they tell all their secrets. And they're not a bad person for telling all your secrets. You deserved it because you did this to me. Wow. Yeah. I, again, this is resonating a lot with me and I, I am just kind of stunned. That's crazy. So I think that one of the things, and and you mentioned before is it's this bullying mentality and they bring other people with them. Oh, sure. And, and it doesn't matter, you know, any age, but is there an age where narcissism gets worse? Like, is there, is it, do they you know, go in like phases? Like, is there something that triggers them to oh, act? I don't they're know definitely what- triggered. They're definitely triggered. And certain, certain things with narcissists, you know, if a person is very narcissistic and appearance is very important to them, status is very important to them, or power is very important to them. As they age, they can become bitter, they can be critical, they can kill themselves on Father's Day. If they're a father, that's one of my father's narcissistic um, friends did. And he was such a jerk. And what does he do? He kills himself. He kills himself on Father's Day, leaves the kids a note that it's all their fault. So maximum damage, maximum, you know, and again, we're talking about, you know, the spectrum of narcissism from just being a jerk to being like a full blown, like, you know, narcissistic psychopath you like you know just you know there's big you know there's big ranges of this but the whole point is that when they get older if they're if they've always traded on their looks and they start getting older you can see a narcissistic mother compete with her daughter i can wear my daughter's jeans i'm smaller than my daughter i you know came across with one of these moms at the high school she's praying around she looked ridiculous she's dressed like the teenage girls and she sits down with us and she's like hey girls and i'm like oh hi and she's like look at me i can i'm i i have a smaller size than my daughter Now her daughter was not heavy, but it was like, oh my God, you just literally threw your daughter under the bus trying to make yourself better. And then she's like, I don't know what daughter is doing. You know, she's really let her hair go. And, you know, I, this, I, that I'm this, I'm Mm. better than her. And it's her own daughter. 
you know, so you can have a parent who's a narcissist. And if your parent was a narcissist, you're probably going to resonate to any number of these. Hmm. Yeah, that's crazy. It's it kind of reminds me of a while back. I'm not naming names, but there's a certain celebrity that posed wearing like her five-year-old's pajamas or something like the pajama shirt wore it and posed with it. And I'm like, that's just weird to show that you can fit into your five-year-olds. Point is, is healthy people or people with good boundaries. Like when you go, huh, wow, that's really weird. Or you get this feeling of uncomfortableness or like ickiness or like, ew, like we don't have to have a clinical diagnosis. We can look and go, okay, what is that person's behavior? And, you know, is it, is it healthy or is it not healthy? And if it's not healthy, we don't need a diagnosis to just walk on by. But what we can't do is we can't engage. We can't go in and go, and we can't compete. We can't try to be these people's friends because they don't have friends. They don't love people. They use people. People are an extension of them. So that Mm. little daughter was an extension of them because that's a very different, I saw a post recently with one of my friends who's very funny and she is super skinny. She's like, like half Korean, half Japanese descent. She's the skinniest girl I've ever met. She's beautiful. But she jokingly said, you know, people always criticize me for being skinny, but look what I can do. And she sat in her kid's car seat, (laughs) but it was funny. It wasn't, it wasn't put together as if I'm, I'm, she was kind of making fun of herself and it was tongue in cheek. And, you know, it just was different. And the whole Mm. post had a different feel. Like people were like, oh my gosh, you're so funny way to own your body. Like, you know, cause everybody thinks body shaming is just for heavy people. No, if somebody can't gain weight, like she, she's always like, I can't gain a pound no matter how much I eat, no matter what I do. And my clothes hang off me, you know, so that's her issue. That's her struggle. So, you know, the way she handled it was in a very funny way. And people were like, good girl. Like, you know, we love you the way you are kind of thing, but nobody's going to say, we love you the way you are when you're showing off wearing, you know, your five-year-old pajamas. Right. Yeah. Well, and I think it's a good, you mentioned the the boundaries. I think that that's a good reminder that when you're allowing other people to make you feel a certain way that you know is not true or right, like that's on them, you know, that is, that's their issue and they've got something going on. Um, But can narcissists recover? Like, can they develop self-awareness? Can they learn to say, I'm sorry? Is there recovery for them? I, okay. I did a show many years ago with a lady who claimed that she could help narcissists recover, but I don't agree with her. And the reason being is in order to be in recovery from anything, you have to admit that you have a problem. And the most fundamental thing with a narcissist, if they're never wrong, if they're never sorry, now you could teach a narcissist to say the words, but it's like getting your kids to say they're sorry after a little punch fest. Like, you know, Max say, say sorry to Zach, Zach say sorry to Max. And they're like, eh, I'm sorry. Like, you know, you know, there's no real feeling there. And, you know, that's the thing with a narcissist. Why would you get help? Now, again, it's a big spectrum. So maybe somebody with a little bit of narcissism could be swayed to see and think differently. But if you're a full-blown narcissist and you really have no feelings for anybody, what yourself, 
how do you teach feelings? How do you teach empathy? Yeah. I mean, truly, you know, like when I play with kids, um, you know, I, I coach a swim team and I, I watch them um, interact with each other and I can see the sensitive ones, right. You know, who feel everything. Then you've got kind of the neurotypical group that, you know, are kind of like they can take it or leave it. And then you have a couple like, you know, in a swim team of like 35 kids, you've got a couple kids who could really give a crap about anybody else, (laughs) any other thing they want to be first. If I don't recognize that they took two seconds off their time, they're offended. Like that's the other thing with a narcissist. They are always offended about something. So if somebody offends them, the waiter offends them, the person in line offends them, the cashier offends them, you know, you offend them and it's a pattern, you're probably dealing with a narcissist. And it's always somebody else's fault, Yep. right? That they're like, somebody else started it is what it sounds like that somebody else is doing it. Yeah. Yeah. That's so interesting. So what about like, what if you think I mean, because with little kids, right? Like talking about parenting, our kids are always egocentric to a certain point, right? And it's really hard for our kids to develop that abstract way of thinking and all that. So how do we, how can we make sure our kids aren't narcissists? Like, is there something we can do to help promote empathy early on so that, you know, they're not turning into... I think, you know, as you know, parents model behavior for kids. So if we model care for animals, care for our environment, care for other people, and even just saying to your kids, because some things can look like narcissism and it's not, especially in kids. So some kids need a little more help in recognizing others. Like, you know, when your toddlers are like, you know, I want this truck and I'm going to bonk the other kid over the head with a plastic hammer to get it. <laughs> and you have to stop them and say, okay, you know, Zach, don't hit him in the head with a hammer. Use your words. You know, we do all these things. I find it helpful if you have kids who may or may not be as empathetic as you would hope saying, well, how do you think they felt when you said that? You know, what do, what do you think about if they said that to you, how would you feel? And, you know, trying to get your kid to at least think and maybe turn on some of those feelings. And maybe if they don't have those feelings naturally, they may never do that, but they can, can recognize, you know, look at his face. How did his face look when he said that, or when she said that, or you said that? And help them look at faces, help them, because there are kids, like both of my kids don't have great, they're not really good at reading social situations in some respects. And so my little one, especially you'll blurt things out that you're like, you don't say that in public. (laughs) And, um, you know, like he said to, to one of the, my mom friends who lost 110 pounds, he's like, wow. He's like, you really lost a lot of weight. And she said, Oh, thank you. And he goes, you must be really weak. I thought it was all muscle. She's like, no, it wasn't muscle. And he goes, Oh, so you were just all fat, you know? (laughs) And you're like, Oh, okay. And so after that happened, I said, well, did you see her face when you said that? He goes, yeah. I said, tell me what her face looked like. He goes, oh, well, her mouth was open. He's like, she stopped talking. And he goes, she stood up. And I said, okay, all of those are signs that, you know, maybe you shouldn't say these things or stop, you know, before it gets to that part. So, you know, working with your kids in, in recognizing other people's feelings Sometimes you have kids that need more help 
than others. And I think mm -hmm. that goes a long way. You're probably never going to be able to turn on feelings that are not there, mm -hmm. but you might help them cognitively recognize the feelings in others so that their behavior is more in alignment with what we deem as socially acceptable. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That's, that's super interesting. So, you know, we talked about how, or if a actual narcissist can recover from being a narcissist or can, can receive help therapy, whatever. But what about recovery from being in a relationship with one or oh. from working for one? Like, how do you recover from that? What do you do? Like you have to do the work you have to, um, first of all, you have to, I think you need the help of a professional, somebody who is skilled in working with narcissism. And this is not every therapist, because a lot of times in therapy, they will tell you, go talk to your co-parent, talk to your spouse about this, tell them how you feel. Well, when you do that with a narcissist, you literally just put bullets in their gun to shoot at you later. Mm -hmm. So you need to have somebody, number one, first and foremost, that's skilled in narcissism. Second of all, you need to go through all the wounds that you've acquired during your time with this person. And that could be a 10-year marriage, 20-year marriage, a 10-year you know, workspace, because you have to kind of unlearn what they taught you. They taught you to be in service to them. They taught you that their feelings were important, not yours. Their goals and achievements were important, not yours. So you have, there's a lot of reclaiming of self. There's a lot of unscrambling your brain because you've been with a person, like imagine this person with an egg beater in your brain going, okay, I've now scrambled all your thoughts so that I can basically control you. And so a lot of people leaving a narcissistic relationship will have really bad self-esteem. They'll have really bad boundaries. They'll, they'll be broken and sad and confused. And that needs some help, some specific help in untangling and building back. I think journaling helps a lot because you can look back at the journaling and writing those stories down of the things you experience, like my post-it story. Write that down because there's part of you that's like, wow, if I don't remember it, I'm going to go crazy. Like, so you're holding on to these memories and like putting those memories in a book or putting them in a place on a, you know, a website or put them on an online journal on your phone and notes, putting them in a place so that you can set that story aside. Because remember, they're just stories. These stories that the narcissist told you are not true. They're not your truth. But you have to get away from that person long enough and far enough to start regaining yourself. Yeah, yeah. What if you can't? What if it's a, a family member or a, a workplace you can't leave? Yeah. What if it's your kid, you know? Well, like right. I mean, that's where these ones are really tough ones. And that's where you need, I believe you need true therapeutic support. I think you need to grow, get, join a support group. I think you need to read and educate if you can afford it, you know, get some mental health training because you're literally, imagine if, if you had a, a spouse or a child who came every day and punched you in the arm six times in the same place. You know, eventually you'd be like, okay, I need to put a pad on there. You know, I need to sit farther away from you. Maybe I need to get somebody to come in and help me deal with, you know, you can't stop the punching, let's say. And we wouldn't, we would never 
judge anyone for getting away from someone or taking a break or walking out on someone who hits them, right? Like, duh. But they're punching you in the brain. They're punching you in the heart. They're using words and stories and manipulations to do the very same thing. And those invisible wounds carry a lifetime. So if you're a child of a narcissist, you're going to need to put up some pretty strong boundaries. And one of the things that I did in dealing with that and dealing with my kids, I put a superhero shirt on them. So when you wear your superhero (laughs) shirt, so-and-so's mean words can't hurt you. And I would wear a Batman necklace, like my little Batman, you know, and I would put my hand on it when I'd have to deal with my old boss or my old ex-husband or some people in my family, you know, to remember this is not me. This is not me. But you have to get help to get that strong. Like if you've been beaten down for, for 10, 15, you know, 20 years, you need that support and you need the support of a rational, non-involved person to look at you and go, okay, let's, let me reflect back to you what I'm hearing you say. And then you say this thing. And when you hear the therapist say it, you're like, oh my God, that's crazy. But you've been so brainwashed Mm -hmm. by your boss or brainwashed by your spouse or your child or your parent that this is okay. You need somebody that has no vested interest in your marriage, no vested interest in everybody getting together for Christmas and it being peaceful you need that outside influence to, to help you unscramble your thoughts and your brain so that you can go out in the world and know what's mine and what is not mine. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it is so like, it's so much information that I also know everybody who's listening right now is going, I know something like that. I have been through that. Yep. And, and, and it's crazy to think how many people are getting away with treating other people <laughs> like right. this, you know, but is there anything else? Because we're, we're running out of time. I'd love to know, is there any other, are there any other words of encouragement that you could offer to someone who is stuck, who yep. feels stuck? What yep. else? Is, is there anything, any way you can encourage them before we go? Yeah, that you're not the only one. And that a narcissist can affect 50, 60, 70 people. That's why it feels like there's so many of them because they affect so many people. And if you're struggling and you're, first of all, you're not alone. And number two, you don't always have to feel this way. I know you get to the point like I did where you just want to give up. Like it's easier just to stay, to shut up, to have no voice, to have no opinion, to always be wrong and just accept yourself as this huge failure. But there's that little spark inside of you that goes like, wait a minute, wait a minute, I'm still in here. And that's the one you need to connect with. You need to connect to that little spark in you that says, well, you know what? I'm not a loser. I'm not crazy. I'm not this person. And start taking walks, start separating as much as you can, even if it's just as simple as, you know, let's have dinner three times a week instead of every night of the week. Like, where can you get breaks from this person? Because you're right, not everybody can leave the relationship. But there's lots of help online. There's lots of articles to read. And I'm a strong proponent, Aaron, the more you know about what you're dealing with, 
the better you can maneuver in your household over the holidays, you know, with your, maybe your son-in-law or daughter-in-law is a huge narcissist and you don't want to lose your relationship with your child. So there's help out there. There's YouTubes, there's articles to read, there's books, all sorts of things you can find to help yourself navigate the path with a narcissist because you can't always just say, oh, I quit or, oh, I don't want to see my son ever again because of his wife. Yeah. Yeah. Cause, oh yeah. I didn't even think about the in-law situation. I mean, it just can get so twisted. So yeah, I think that that's really helpful. And I am just, uh, uh, for me, it, it really helped me to even know better how to connect with people who are struggling in this way. And so I think this is just all over a really great conversation. So thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and your knowledge. And I'm just so, so glad that we had this conversation. Me too. Me too. Cause I think, you know, a lot of people help me. Somebody who was married to a narcissist said to me, you're drowning and you don't even know enough to swim anymore. Wow. And I didn't understand what she was talking about at that point. And she dragged me out of my office and dragged me to this group, you know, group therapy group of, you know, women, just like me and the women in the group. One was a husband was a fire chief. One was a police chief. One was high ranking military, you know, and one was an entertainer, you know, all these different things. I'm not, I'm not saying that these, you know, these industries are wrong, but they do kind of attract certain things. And all of a sudden, And same thing with churches, you know, churches are not immune. There's lots of narcissists running churches. So you come together in this group. And I looked at all these women and the thing that we had in common, Erin, was we were all pretty gentle people. We were considered nice by the community. We got along with everybody and we didn't make waves. And that made us perfect targets for these narcissistic men. And again, I can only talk from my own experience, so I'm not judging anyone. But when you sit in a room of 25 women and you hear the same story over and over, it was like an AA meeting. And you're Mm -hmm. like, oh my gosh, like this is a personality type or this is a type of person. And we are all alike. You know, all of us were very nice looking. We were all, nobody was fat. Nobody was thin. Nobody was tall. Nobody was short. We were all kind of like just nice looking people. And when I'm looking around there going like many of us had a lot of the same characteristics and mannerisms. And mm. when I did that research, I'm like, oh, that's why those two fit together. There's a certain type of attraction there. And, and I think that's true for men too. men who work for narcissists or men who are relationships with, like it's, it's the guys that are not causing waves, yep. the guys who are just steady and yeah, that's gosh, that's so good. Well, thank you again. I'm just, and thank you so much for sharing your story and being vulnerable because as you know, Brene Brown always says, vulnerability is a gift. And so just that is a gift to everybody else who is listening to this. So I appreciate you being on and sharing everything. Thank you. Thank you. And I don't want to live in shame anymore. That's a big part of it. I don't want to be ashamed about these things that were not mine. Absolutely. And that is a perfect thing to end on. This is not yours to carry. So put it down. Leave there. On behalf of Sandra Beck, we want you to get out there today to make more money with less time and effort so you can live the life you want. Tune in next week for more tips, tricks, and techniques on Coach.